you have a Bible, it would be appropriate, very good time to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. The focus of the sermon will be very similar to what the focus of the children's sermon was. Um, and uh, we'll cover that in three points. You see those in the bulletin. I can remember uh, the very first Christmas sermon I preached. It was in 1978. And I was a young preacher. I hadn't really done any training at that point other than just lay training. And so I remember being up all night and just filled with stress. Because I wanted to say everything you could say about Christmas in one sermon. After it was over, people told me, that was a great sermon, Pastor. It felt like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant. <laughs> so we hope it'll be a little bit more simple today and to the point. And that's what we're going to do. And I love to preach Christmas messages because Christmas really is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best good news you can ever hear or know. And so with that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we start in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until... She had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we do ask today that the power of the Holy Spirit will be operative in this service. We do not depend on the wisdom of men. We do not depend on clever rhetoric. We do not depend on entertaining. We totally depend upon your gospel, your power, and the work of the Spirit in the heart of the one who preaches as well as the one who hears the message. We pray that you would get glory to yourself, that people would leave this sermon most impressed with Jesus Christ our Lord. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Now the title of the message is Good News for Bad People. And that's not a trite cliche. That's not some sort of clever title. That is the truth. The gospel, the message of Christmas, is good news 
for bad people. And you say, Pastor, do you really think people are bad? I, let me tell you on the street, talking to people as I do in various places, here's how I think most people see the human race. Most people would say that about two or three, maybe even if they're pessimistic, 5% of the people in this world are really bad, bad people. You know, people who commit child abuse or people who are um, cruel, terrorists, uh, people who murder, uh, people who do heinous things uh, to other people and, and to creation itself, that there's, there's just horror in that. So about 5% of the people are that way. And then you've got about another 2 or 3% who are sort of like Mother Teresa. I mean, they're overachievers. They're really, really good people. You would be uncomfortable in the presence of a person like Mother Teresa because Mother Teresa is perceived of being holy or somebody would say like Billy Graham or some other famous religious figure. Those people are the good people, but the rest of us, the 80% in the middle, so to speak, we're not bad people. We're, we're good people who occasionally do bad stuff. Some of us do more bad than others. And so therefore, you know, you don't need to get all fired up, Pastor, calling me bad on Christmas Eve. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm nobody. I'm just a voice. I'm just one call to herald forth the truth of the gospel. But by the Bible's estimation, don't flatter yourselves. The truth is really bad news. That's the truth. The truth about who we are apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's really bad. The Bible, as I said, does not flatter human nature. Jesus never came and told people, just keep on trying, keep on trucking, keep on trying to do what you know is right, and God will somehow make up the difference. The gospel theology is this. The angels at the birth of Christ said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. The birth of Christ is an entrance of a person who will accomplish a work that will bring about a new power uh, working its way in this world, and it is the gospel good news. We don't need good advice. We don't need a sage telling us, how to make ourselves better. We don't need somebody to tell us, psychoanalyze us necessarily, or look at us and say, well, you're pretty good here, you're pretty good here, but here's how you can be a better person. And ultimately, when you die, God will look and he will see that the good you've attempted to be and the good that you are will outweigh the bad that you have done. That's the biggest lie in the universe. That smells like sulfur. It smells like smoke. It comes out of the pit of hell. If we could do that, then why would Jesus even need to come? Why would he even need to come into the world if I can save myself? If I can be a good person on my own, if I can accomplish what I need to accomplish to be fully actualized as a human being, to be a productive member of society, to be regarded as a good fellow, then why do I need Jesus? I got bad news for you, because you're bad. Every single one of us is a hot mess.
me included. We're all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. Even worse than that, we're totally deceived about it. We don't believe it. We don't, when we hear it, we get defensive about it. We get offended at whoever's telling us that because it's insulting to us. It's insulting to me if I'm trying to be a good person for you to tell me that that is a splendid exercise in missing the whole point of Christianity. It is a vagrant opinion with no visible means of support. Christ didn't come to save good people. He says it over and over and over again. He came to save sinners. And sinners are bad people. There's something wrong with us, something deeply askew, something awry. There's something in our hearts that shouldn't be there. And so that is why Jesus came. He must come. He is the only hope any of us have. Amol Bruner said it this way, we can only really understand what the Bible means by the coming of the Son of God and this unique event when we interpret it from the point of the view of the presupposition of the Bible itself. The presupposition of the movement is the gulf between God and man, the abyss which lies between holy God and sinful creature. The incarnation of the Son of God is determined by sin. That's why he came. He came to save us from our sin. God comes because he must come. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do it. We are powerless, impotent, unable to improve or change ourselves by ourselves. He will come because the creature has turned away from him. This does not mean that the perfecting of the creation, this indeed would be a movement within continuity, but the restoration of a fallen creation throughout the Bible, the coming of the Son of God always means the summons to return to God. He comes because he must come. There's no other way that we can be saved. And so he makes that clear. Now, there are three things I want to do with this message by uh, the time that we're done. I want to talk about the th three names, and I have them listed for you in the bulletin. The three names are Jesus, which we heard Christ uh, Christian talk about, Yahweh saves. The second name is God with us, and the third name is his people. Those are the three things that we will spend the next few moments thinking together about. You know, um, the Bible tells us that Christ tells us in Revelation 1-5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Not he washed, then loved us, but he loved us, then washed us. The gospel is good news for bad people. But that's because the only people who see the gospel as good news who are people who know they can't make it on their own. They, they know they're lost. They've seen something of the abyss of their own heart. Now, we normally expect good news for good people. That makes sense, doesn't it? But that's not the Bible. The Bible is not that at all. And if you think the Bible is that, somebody's fooling you. It's not what the Bible's about. If it was about that, I'd just go home. Forget about it. 
But the gospel is not good news for good people. No, there are none good, no, not one, the Bible says. Being bad makes you a prime candidate for his grace. I got good news for you. If you know you're sick, you need a physician. If you know you're a sinner, you know you need righteousness outside of you. You cannot produce it. And that is what the gospel is, God coming for us. Now, the first name, we notice that Joseph was commanded to name his son Jesus. And Jesus is Yeshua. In the original, it means Yahweh saves or Joshua. The simplest uh, meaning is the baby will give up or live up, excuse me, to his name. As God's mediator of salvation, the God-man who will deliver is Yahweh. Yahweh saves. And that's who Jesus is. Yahweh saves. Remember Moses at the burning bush? And Moses was out in the desert, on the backside of the desert for 40 years. He'd been a loser at everything he tried to do. And so one day he's out tending uh, sheep, and he notices a bush burning, and the bush wasn't consumed. And he heard a voice come from the bush, which said this, Take off your sandals, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And Moses said, who are you? What is your name? What, who should I tell the people after the voice from the bush commissioned him to go to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh release God's people out of Egypt and allow them free passage into the promised land? And, and, and Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am, in this particular case, means is the meaning of the name Yahweh, a form of the verb to be. That is the one who has the power of being, the one who causes everything that exists to be, the one himself who is self-sufficient in himself, who needs no one, who needs no uh, support from anything else, one who is completely in himself, God, the aseity of God, one who is independent, one who is unaffected by that which is outside of him. That's who's sending you, Moses. That's who I am. And the angel commissioned Joseph to name Jesus Yahweh Saved. Do you know who it was that came into the womb of the very Virgin Mary? It was the second person of the Trinity, God himself. No man can save you. No man can deliver you. The wisdom and the collective knowledge of man can save you. God must save you if you're going to be saved. And he has the power. He spoke the world into existence out of nothing. God didn't need pre-existent materials to make the world come into being. He speaks, and it is, because he has the power of being in himself. And if you live and breathe and move and have being today, it is because you have your isness out of him. You exist. You live out of his being. And he made you for himself. And our hearts are restless because we haven't found our true home. He made us for himself. And so Jesus is the one who comes 
into the womb of the Virgin Mary through the virginal conception. He's the God-man. Jesus, he himself, will save us. Only God can save us. Jonah found that out in the fish. Uh, the psalmist found it out through life. Saving people from their sins is his business. He's not simply a representative of God, nor an instrument of God, but God himself. The Son is in no way inferior to the Father. Jesus is God himself who saves us. Jesus also is an, an entirely, at the same time, a human being. He's one person with two natures. He has the nature of God himself. He has the nature of our humanity, sin accepted. And this is who God sent into the world to unite with our human flesh in order to deliver us and save us because we cannot do it ourselves. We try so hard to justify ourselves. We try so hard to figure out how we're going to measure up. We can't do it. We were not intended to do it. He saves us from our sins. He saves us from the condemnation of the law. He brings us grace and truth. He saves us from our sins, the penalty of our sins, the power of our sins, the ultimate presence of our sins are delivered, we are delivered from by Christ. The penalty of our sin, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is to be forever under the judgment of God, separated from him from all of eternity. That's what sin pays us in the end. And it destroys us now. It disfigures us. It damages us. And it makes us not able to see I think sometimes we have such a, a, a poor conception of the nature of sin in our being. I want to just try to correct that quickly by one of my great uh, teachers by the name of Richard Lovelace. He says this about the depth of sin. The, the depth of sin is a, um, something that every believer needs to know. And so Lovelace says this. He said... The structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than isolated acts and thoughts of deliberate, deliberate disobedience commonly designated by the word. In its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. Sin originated in the darkening of the human mind and the heart of, um, as man turned from the truth about God to embrace a lie about him and consequently a whole universe of lies about his creation. Sinful thoughts, words, deeds flow forth from this darkened heart automatically and compulsively as water from a polluted fountain. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts, of his heart, were only evil continually. 
This is echoed in Jesus' words. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by the fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil man out of uh, his evil treasure brings forth evil. The human heart, and I'll close with this, Quote, not the sermon. <laughs> the human heart is now a reservoir of unconscious, disordered motivation and response of which unrenewed persons are unaware if left to themselves for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? It is as if they were uh, without mirrors and suffering from tunnel vision. They can see neither themselves clearly nor the great peripheral area around their immediate experience, God and supernatural reality. As two of the most crucial loci of their understanding, their awareness of God and of themselves, they are almost in total darkness, although they may attempt to remedy this by framing false images of themselves before God. That is our condition, folks. We don't have a mosquito bite. We got cancer of the soul raging, devouring us. That's why Jesus came to save us from our sin. Because he's the only one that can deliver us from that. You know, the people in the first century, especially the Jewish people in the first century, when they understood the term Messiah, the one who would come from the prophets in the Old Covenant and Old Testament, they assumed he would be a king who would ride in on a white stallion who would deliver the people from their oppressors. They're almost... Uh, Closet Marxist, it sounds like. But they were looking for someone to deliver them from their great oppressor, Rome, and to establish at that time the kingdom where God would dwell with his people and the temple would be restored and everything would be right. And Jesus helps them understand that what you need to be saved from for is not outside of you. It's what's wrong inside of you. It's what's wrong inside of you. Now, everything I just said about sin, I could say amen to myself. For some reason, the Lord in his grace has shown me that I'm that way. You say, well, what are you a preacher for? Because I have hope. Because I have hope. Because I have a Savior, and I want you to know this Savior. I, I long for you to see the beauty and glory of the truth, of the suitability and attractiveness of Jesus Christ for your soul. And that's why I showed up today. That's why I'm here. Jesus, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The second name that I want to call your attention to is mentioned in this text is the one Christian also mentioned, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel in Hebrew means to be present or to be with or to be intimate. El in Hebrew means God. So he is God with us. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it means a great deal, and I'm going to jump on my horse, and you hang on, and we'll get through it. The second name is God with us. That was George Whitfield's favorite name of Jesus. We have a covenant God. 
A covenant God is a God who desires relationship, who has designed us and desires us to dwell with us and to know us intimately and closely. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. And so in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, we actually have in the garden itself a sanctuary of God's presence where God dwelt with Adam and Eve. And in the cool of the evening, he would walk with them in the garden. There was a sense that God wants me. God desires to be with me. He longs, as much as God can long, as it were, he longs for my presence. He loves me. He's crazy about me. And that's why Jesus is called Emmanuel. He is God with us. God with us. See, most of the time, because of our sinfulness, our guilt, our shame, the horror of our souls of being found out, of being exposed, that we don't want to be near God because God is threatening. He knows everything. He knows us inside out. But the wonderful message of the gospel is he knows all that, and he came in the person of his son to do something about it. There are two reasons why we can't go to heaven. Two reasons. Number one, we're guilty. And number two, we're not fit to go. We're guilty, filthy, and not fit to go. What does that mean? In order for me to go to heaven, I have to be as righteous as Jesus is. I have to be as good as Jesus is. And in order to go to heaven, somebody's got to do something about this sin of mine. Because this sin of mine has put me in debt to God. I am in debt. I am liable to judgment. I am liable to punishment because I haven't just sinned against you. I've sinned ultimately against God himself before his face, Coram Deo. And so the wonderful news of the gospel is his son, Jesus, came to take care of those two big issues. How does he do it? First, he takes care of my guilt and my shame and my horror at being exposed for people to know how broken and how distorted and how sinful I really am. Jesus goes to the cross and bears in his own body as the Lamb of God my sin and he receives God's outpoured judgment on my behalf. I will never answer for my sin. Why? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation ever again. But there's a second thing I need. I need righteousness. I need obedience to the law. And Jesus did something for me. He took my place in the covenant with God and he obeyed everything God required of me to go into heaven. He obeyed himself. And he freely, freely as I repent and return to him gives it to me as a gift. And so I stand before the Lord because of Emmanuel, because of the name Jesus, I stand before the Lord and receive that gift freely. It's mine as much as if I had done it myself. That's why he came. He didn't come to be just a teacher or a prophet or to stir up trouble or to condemn people. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world 
for those who trust in him. And so the good news of the gospel is he has accomplished what is necessary to take us from being far, far, far away from God, like the prodigal in the far country, and to bring us ultimately into his very presence. He wants us. He doesn't need us. You can't be uh, self-sufficient in, entirely in your being and need anything. I don't know why he wants us, but he wants us. He wants us because it's the nature of his heart is love, and he loves to communicate himself to us. He wants you. He wants you. That's why he came to save us from our sin. And so the wonderful truth of the gospel is he is not only the name Jesus, not only the name Emmanuel, but finally the name his people. Jesus is for his people. As I told you earlier, there are three classes of people, three categories of people from a theological standpoint. There are bad people who don't know they're bad. They just don't know. That's most people. Pop psychology softens the dysfunctional uh, error. Nothing seems wrong, but the Bible says we're a mess. But the wonderful thing that Charles Spurgeon said, it's in the beginning first page of your bulletin. I'm going to read it to you just in case you didn't read it because you thought it was too long. I'm going to read it for you. It says this. Spurgeon in a glorious sermon on this very text, he shall save his people from their sins, says, Notice the very gracious but starting, startling fact that our Lord's connection with his people lies in the direction of their sins. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, virtues, but to forgive their sins. Be encouraged, therefore, really to lay hold by faith of such a, uh, a one with such a name, with such regard for your personal need. You have a personal Savior for your personal sin. And that's why we call it salvation by grace. Because God's grace is his favor and his goodness and his pity and his mercy shown toward the undeserving, the ill-deserving, the rebellious, the hostile. You can have a new life today if you become one of his people. Who are his people? Is it the Jews? I don't think in context that's what he's talking about at all. What he's saying here is my people are the people who hear this message and believe it. At some point in your life, in order to become a Christian, you've got to stop trying to make yourself a good person. You've got to stop trying to save yourself. You've got to give up all of your acts of self-justification. And you've got to come before the Lord with empty hands, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. And he will give it to you freely. He will not hold it back. Have you done that? Is that something you've done? 
Well, say, Pastor, you're expecting me to do this this morning just because you preached one sermon? I don't care about that. And I don't want to hear that. What I want to say and what I care about is, have you faced the fact that one day you will stand before Jesus and he will either be your Savior or your judge? Which one will he be for you? My heart's desire and plea for you is that he'll be your Savior. Stop trusting in anything, anyone, any kind of other method and just come empty-handed to the Savior. He will save us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this text today. It is a glorious text. Uh, so much more could be said. So much more could be covered. But what we've heard is enough. Help us to see that we're bad people confessing to be bad and that the Holy Spirit has melted our hearts and uh, that in turning and trusting in Christ, we have been accepted forever in the Beloved. How we pray that you would be pleased to call people from darkness to light, to call people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son, to regenerate people, to cause people to come to life, to experience spiritual resurrection. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who Jesus is saving from their sins. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.